Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Eden Marco. He is the um, customer engineer at Google Cloud, best-selling Udemy instructor, and a back-end dev with passion for Gen AI. So welcome to the show, Eden. Thank you. How's it going, Stuart? Happy to be here. Yeah, it's going great. Um, so uh, you wanted to mention something about how the, your views aren't of your employer, right? Um, so yeah, so basically I'm uh, interviewing right now as Edir Marco. Um, all the um, statements I'm going to mention here are my opinions, opinions only, and I'm not speaking on behalf of my employer or represent everything. This is just me as Edir Marco as a person and going on a podcast. Very excited to get into your brain because you are technical and you have a passion for uh, these LLMs that are popping up everywhere at uh, the speed of light, basically, just so much stuff happens every day. So I'm really excited to dig in more. Uh, before we started recording, you were talking about vector databases, and I'll just give you a little bit more background from what I understand. Back when AutoGPT came out, I was under the impression that they were using a vector database like Pinecone uh, in order to give it long-term memory. Um, but you actually said that that's actually not what vector databases are for. It's actually for, they're for similarity search and that these guys are just using normal databases in order to do long-term memory. Can you give a little bit more of an explanation to what's going on and maybe the problems even of, of giving long-term memory to these agents? Yeah, um, sure. So um, the most common use case I see nowadays for vector database and folks implementing it is mainly for similarity search. And what I mean by that is to, uh, basically there is a common pattern when you develop an LLM application is to use something which is called in-context learning. So let's say that you want um, to ask question the LLM that it was not trained on. For example, I wrote a poem and I want to ask questions about that poem. So if I'm going to ask the LLM questions about the poem, it wouldn't know because it was not trained on it. It's something I, I just wrote on my uh, computer. So uh, that's where in context comes in, uh, in context learning. So basically what we can do is take our original prompt, like what did I mention in the poem? And then as context, add this poem or parts of it. And then the LLM knows how to digest it and to output a beautiful answer because it has the context. And it turns out that LLMs are very good uh, when they have context. Mm. Now, where vector stores come in, um, it's all about getting the right context to our prompts. Okay, so let's say that um, let's say that I want now to um, I have this long essay that I want now to question to question about, and it doesn't have to be an essay. It can be a transcript. It can be anything, any piece of data. So what we can do, we can take this essay, we can chunk it up to um, paragraph, let's say, and then we can we can uh, we can transform those paragraphs into vectors. Okay, we're going to be using a, an embeddings module. So this is like a black box which is going to receive the text and it will output a vector. 
So this vector is like a list of numbers. It can be of a, a, any size depending on the embedding models. And what happens here is that uh, we need to put those vectors somewhere, okay? And on its own, on their own, they're not very useful. Now, what's cool about vectors is that, and embeddings module is that um, they keep the semantic meaning. So if I, for example, embed the phrase, hello, my name is Eden, and I also uh, embed the phrase, hola, mi nombre es Eden. <laughs> And so basically in the vector space, those vectors are going to be very close uh, to each other if there is a vector space, okay? Now, what vector stores are very, very good at is to find vectors that are close to each other. So let's say I have my question, like I will go back to the answer, to the example of the, of the paragraph of the essay and I want to ask a question about it. So let's say I'm asking, who is Benjamin Franklin? And then I turned everything into vectors and put it into a vector store like Pinecone, ChromaDB, matching engine of GCP, um, WV8, lot, lots of vector stores. But if I put it there, what I can do is to actually take my question, embed it into a vector. So it's now also floating right there on the, um, on the vector space. And I can ask the vector store, hey, can you give me some relevant vectors? What are the closest vectors that are closest to my question of who is Benjamin Franklin? Mm -hmm. So the vector store would, would find me some paragraphs like Benjamin Franklin was born at blah, blah. Uh, he was the, and uh, all the information I need. So the most relevant, okay? So it would give us semantically related um, um, vectors. We then take those vectors we, we, which are originating from the data themselves. And then the prompt that I'm going to pass to the LLM is not going to be who is Benjamin Franklin. It's going to be who is Benjamin Franklin, use this context. And in this context, we're going to have those chunks that actually have the answer, okay? So, mm -hmm. so, so, so that's what is vector database are actually doing. So they're finding us the relevant vectors. Now, your question was originating from a um, from long-term memory, okay? So um, do you want me to go to this, to, to explain how does memory work? Um, yeah, absolutely. LLMs? Would love to understand it, and particularly maybe the difference between humans and, and the machines and like what we've learned about it based on that. So I'd love to understand what is long-term memory for the computer and how does that work? Okay, yeah, um, um, cool. So basically memories, um, let's just think about it as a, a, what is it solving? One of the things uh, that uh, memory can help us solve when we're using LLM is to have something which is called a co-reference resolution, okay? Mm -hmm. So for example, I'm saying, hey, what did he say? And uh, the LLM can, if it has like our conversation here, it's, it's, it can deduce that he is Stuart. okay? Mm -hmm. So this is the co-reference resolution to, to um, a, to determine what is uh, some kind of uh, nouns and uh, what objects they refer to, okay? So there are some, many implementations uh, for memories in LLMs, but they're all very, very simple. So basically it usually goes into chats, okay? Uh, into uh, chats when we chat with the LLM and we wanted to remember our uh, previous uh, questions, right? So what we can do, um, uh, one thing is to save a buffer. Okay, so we have a buffer and we simply store the question that we asked and the answer that we got, uh, uh, and the answer uh, that uh, was answered, 
okay? So let's say ask the LLM, hey, what is the, the city with the most uh, people in it? Then it would uh, out me the answer. I simply uh, plug it in into the buffer. Now, the interesting about it, and it's very, very simple. If we have another question, we simply add it to the buffer until it grows and grows and grows. Now, this introduces uh, a problem because if it keeps growing, then uh, we can't use it all because LLMs have, um, they, they have a limitation of tokens they can digest. So uh, it can be 8K, mm -hmm. 16K, maybe some have uh, 100K, for example, or by or Anthropic. Um, and and uh, so we need like smarter ways to, to handle this memory. So, so there are lots of techniques uh, to do it. Uh, one technique is, for example, to summarize the conversation, okay? To summarize, to literally give the, the LLM, hey, summarize this, uh, uh, this conversation, to save the summary, and we're going mm -hmm. to only be using that. We can save only the one, uh, one last messages, two last messages, K last messages, and then the rest of the summary, and then uh, we plug it in as the context. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, long-term memory, actually, and by the way, we can also embed it. Uh, we can take this uh, conversation history, and we can also embed it and put it in a vector store, mm -hmm. and we can also like attach timestamps to it and stuff like that. So that might also be an implementation of it. That is super interesting. Uh, so long-term memory. Uh, so we've got these techniques that. We can we can essentially summarize a conversation, and then instead of using the whole entire com conversation, we can use the summary of, of that as long-term memory. And it makes me think think about human beings and human beings' memories. And I don't think human being memories are super understood at a scientific level. Uh, but I'm curious to see. And and if you don't have expertise in in this particular thing, just feel free to let let us know, and you can you can speculate as much as you want because uh, the show is all about speculate speculation and uh, and creativity and and anything that's said on the show should not be taken seriously. But I would apply that to everyone in the planet. So uh, so yeah. But uh, but we've got this long term memory. I think they they believe it kind of is centralized in the hippocampus and everything like that. And it's really, it's really, really connected to emotion, like emotional things. We memorize emotional things, particularly really difficult things. And it just reminds me of like the complexity of the universe that we have this very, very complex universe. And then our brains model that universe in a way that shrinks it down into a fantasy imagination um, and then saves representations of that, that imagination in like ways that are very fallible. Uh, but kind of have this really big emotional salience um, and then are saved inside of our brains and like pulled up if a, if a, if an emotion comes up or anything like that. Do you happen to know anything about whether that's how these LLMs are functioning? Cause it, cause they don't have emotions, right? So how do we, how do, how does memory work uh, as an analogy to human memory? Yeah. Okay. So so there are a couple of, so first of all, everything we're seeing right now about LLMs like behaving like humans. And I actually uh, uh, dove in uh, pretty deep into the source codes of how it's implemented. And to be honest, basically it's, it's very, very simple overall. And uh, it's not, a, mm. it's human-like behavior. So the, it's nothing human at all, okay? So basically what is happening is that uh, each, uh, let's call it agent, Okay, which represents uh, some kind of uh, LLM uh, being, uh, which codes that runs uh, in a loop, okay, and can interact with other agents. Basically, each agent has its own memory, and its own memory is simply the, the buffer that I talked to you earlier is simply stored in a persistent storage, so like a regular database. 
Now, uh, like you said, memories, we have emotions and some memories are harder and stronger. So, so does, you can also um, implement it in the um, LLM's memory. So you can take a memory and give it a rank, how important is it is uh, with one to 10, with uh, one is being not so important and 10 is being very, very important, okay? So you can also, when you pass, we also, by at the end, we pass this memory as contacts every time we talk to the LLM. Every time like this uh, LLM is making like a human-like behavior, it's basically we're taking like the input that uh, uh, we want to ask it, like or we want it to behave, for example, hey, respond to what the other agent told you. And then we said, hey, use also this context, this history you have, and we can search for the relevant history, which is most relevant for that uh, input that uh, the LLM uh, got. And we simply pass it as a, an LLM call, like uh, we would do uh, regularly. And then the LLM would take this uh, memory as context, okay? And uh, we it also have scores and knows how to um how how to interpret its memory uh, how to interpret this memory if it's going to be very very meaningful or if it's not going to be and based on that okay and this is happening with some sophisticated prompt engineering like uh, setting the prompt hey you have this memory and if you have the score ten you know you should really base your answer on this so this is pretty much what enables those uh, autonomous agents uh, to have. Um, long-term long-term memory, which helps them seem like humans. But uh, if you dive a little bit deeper, it's not human at all. It's all very statistic. It's all it's all about it's 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 beautiful in my opinion. Yes, but it's not human at all, and and it doesn't claim to be. There is there is no re no no real reasoning. It's all a matter of statistical guesses. Um, that's super interesting. Uh, it reminds me of a quote I recently heard of. Uh, the question of whether a computer can think is no more interesting than whether a submarine can swim. Uh, and I, uh, it's from Edsger Dijkstra, uh, and uh, it's a great it's a great quote because it talks about like you know it's like a submarine is a submarine swimming is a machine thinking well kind of it's like a simulation. And do you think that human the AGI will always be a simulation, or do you think that will uncrack the code will crack the code of the human brain? and be able to create a human-like intelligence? Or do you think that's even important? So I, I don't think, I mean, from what I'm seeing right now, at least in the next couple of, year, uh, couple of years, uh, from what I see, we, I think we are going to get some very interesting technologies and some very interesting advanced use cases like uh, agents, autonomous agents, building things and coding and writing a complete essays and all of that. And that's something I see in the near future, I think uh, even in the next six months, okay? And there are a lot of companies leveraging these autonomous uh, agents right now. I don't think that we uh, will go, at least in the in the, um, in the following years, uh, to, to have like a real uh, human simulation and, you know, like we see in the movies. And um, because everything, uh, like happening right now, and also uh, it's it's all based on statistics. Okay, so it might it might feel like it's real and it has emotions, but but it's not. It's not. It's all it's all guess. It's all a guessing game because underneath the hood, LLMs are statistical creatures. So when I prompt a question to the LLM uh, or I request to do something, it takes my prompt and then it starts guessing what is the what is the highest probability of the word that would suit uh, would best uh, suit uh, the answer okay it does it one by one okay 
So because it was trained on a lot of data, it has and it captures things like human emotions, okay? And, and the emotions like it can seem to express, it's all been deriving from human literature, from uh, from articles, blog posts, movies, transcripts, etc. So it's not like it's thinking for itself or something, but it's just guessing, guessing, but guessing very, very smartly. Super interesting. Um, what can you talk more about? What what is sophisticated prompt engineering? Yeah. So um, this is something we're seeing right now. So I like to think um, about prompt engineering of the art of getting the LLM to do what you want. So if I wanted to write an essay, I can ask, hey, write me an essay. But if I want to have a really good essay, I can say, hey, I want you to write me an essay and focus on A, B, and C. I want you to write this essay as somebody who has been writing essays for 10 years in Columbia University, um, yada, yada, yada. And what I did right now is supplied it with more context to do its job better. So now when it's going to guess the essay that is going to output me, then it's going to uh, hopefully uh, get me better results. Okay, so this is like uh, a very uh, um, simple example of prompt engineering. And sophisticated prompt engineering is like, uh, I don't remember which project I saw it, but I think it was uh, maybe on the um, GPT, GP team uh, that implemented the autonomous agents uh, with Langchain. So I think I saw there the prompt where they actually give, hey, they give the agent um, a, a role, like, hey, you are Daisy, uh, you like uh, to swim, you like literature, and they give you this character, okay? And, uh, and basically that's what is leading the character of that agent, okay? So this is one kind of prompt engineering. Uh, another kind of prompt engineering is, uh, is uh, everything I talked before about uh, augmenting the prompt and sending it relevant context is also a form of, of, of prompt engineering. Um, there are a lot of papers, basically, um, a lot of papers of how to leverage LLMs and how to get better results. There are a lot of techniques, like uh, it all started with uh, zero shots, few shot prompting. We have a chain of thought, react, tree of thoughts. So uh, a lot of papers from the academia on this uh, subject of prompt engineering, but basically everything is just making the prompt, making the LLM return what you want. This is it all. what it all boils down to. Very cool. Um, so you were talking about how the it's a statistical creature. And I wonder, do you think humans are also statistical creatures? Or do you think that humans are uh, are not statistical creatures? Because from my understanding, basically intuition, the way intuition works is that you, you know, go through a lot of painful experiences, and then you understand what's real based on the reactions to those pa painful experiences, which is, I guess, like kind of statistical. But again, humans don't really think statistically. I think the book um, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow shows how bad humans are at statistical thinking. What's your take on that? Um, so I think uh, my take on it that uh, from what I know, uh, we act based on a lot of chemistry. So if we smell something and if something is happening uh, in our brain, it's all boils down to chemistry and to a, a chemical balance of a, I'm, I'm not a, some kind of a brain expert, but a, some a neurons firing. So it's all chemical reactions. Okay. So, and basically those chemical reactions are also based on uh, statistics. So like, uh, uh, so I think, yeah, maybe, maybe we are statistical, 
physical creatures as well but maybe a different form and and so to take that analogy into the human beings the human beings are like i'm sorry to take that analogy into the machines the machines are kind of electrical impulses basically but i guess human beings are also based on the chemistry is also related to electrical impulses as well i know the action potential an action potential is a way that the neuron sends the message from the neuron out to other neurons and it's all based on like sodium channels and stuff like that and so we're electrical beings as well but machines are electrical beings in a different way I mean, I, I don't, I'm not really sure exactly how they are, but I know that building a chip is usually based on electrical engineering. Um, and, uh, and maybe, you know, soon they will have the quantum computers as well. Uh, what you said about, you had said about like that, the, the, the machines are going and they're ingesting all of this data from thousands of years of history. Um, and, uh, to me, this is the first time while you were speaking, I was like, wait, maybe the AI is actually a parasite. Because it's like sucking all the information out, uh, and then and then the owners of that that parasite are then are then um, uh, creating value out of it, and some would say maybe sucking out the ener uh, energy from the people who actually created the content. What's what's your take? Do you think AI is a parasite? So I don't think AI is a parasite, <laughs> but I do think that it has a lot of a, a lot of challenges. Like you said, basically it takes all the history uh, from all the books, blogs, whatever. And let's say I wrote a blog, and uh, right now my blog was ingested by the uh, Wind LLM training, okay? Now somebody asks a question, and it's originating from my blog, okay? And uh, what happens, the LLM uh, output a very good answer and might be even better than my blog. And if there is no, like, uh, uh, sources like, hey, we got it from, from uh, Eden's blog or Eden's blog, then uh, I think that we're going to be facing like a lot of uh, interesting times for uh, creators uh, that create content, especially specifically, for example, blogs. And I mean, because up until now, if I wanted to create a blog, then my incentive was, hey, I'm going to have a lot of uh, site uh, hits to my website, to my blog. People are going to read it. People are going to know who I am. Now, if I'm writing it and an LLM is simply taking it and outputting the answer and not even uh, mentioning I wrote it, then what's my incentive to write something new, okay? However, on the other hand, um, it really um, increases productivity. So I can write much more blogs. And for example, I am not an English speaker, but now I can take advantage of LLMs and, uh, and BARD or ChatGPT in order to write faster blogs and uh, it, it will sound better than I would have um, than what I would have come up with. And so I think it's really it's, it's really a matter of uh, balance. I, I see that um, companies are going that uh, people know that LNMs are statistical and that they need a reference. So I see the change that um, that the source information is important as well and it's being outputted as part of the answer like hey, this is the answer, and we got it from this page in Wikipedia or this blog, etc. But yeah, I think it really is a challenge, uh, and uh, for for um, uh, for some kind of creators, and it might add, it might also hinder a bit of uh, progress of human of humanity because if if less people are going to be writing something of, of their own and are going to be rely, relying on uh, on LLMs to to write all of this. Then what are what what uh, what what are new things we're going to create? So it it can also progress a lot and make things move faster and increase and increase productivity. But at the same time, it may also reduce because everything is going to be based on the LLM on on the history. 
So yeah, it's interesting period times in my opinion. Yeah, what you said about uh, it helping with English as a non-native speaker, I'm in Brazil currently, uh, and I have to navigate a particularly Brazilian bureaucratic thing of getting a new visa, and none of the information online is is very helpful. And so I've been tasking the GPT-4 with the search engine browser plugin uh, to actually go and try to do some of the research for me. But the Brazilian bureaucracy is so gnarly, uh, and its websites are so bad that it can't figure it out as well. I think that brings to mind a question. So like, you know, I've got this, I've got the GPT-4 plugin, which goes and searches the browser. My, my, the dedicated plugin um, functionality isn't working for me, which reminds me, I need to go talk to OpenAI to actually, uh, to fix that. But, um, but the web browser, that's kind of like an agent, right? When you send it to go do a web browsing, that's like an agent. Can you talk more about like what agents are and like how, because it seems very, very, I was watching a, a video from Andrej Carp. Carpathy, who works for OpenAI, a recent video of his saying that they were working on agents, particularly in video games in 2016, 2018, somewhere around there. Um, and it wasn't really working. And then the LLMs started to work really well. Uh, and now we're back again at the agent thing. And he was saying that like, but it's still, we're at the very beginning of those agent things. So, but it definitely seems like it's the next wave. What is the world that is unlocked by these agents? So agents, uh, okay, let me just uh, go two steps back right now. LLMs are, um, are very good at giving us answers, but they're very good on what they're trained on. So they have, they have a very specific, each LLM has a fata because it was trained up until a certain point of time. And after that, it doesn't know anything. So what agents uh, help us do, uh, actually, it's also some, some cool combination of prompt engineering. Um, so um, basically, it's, uh, we can take tools and like searching online, posting on Twitter, writing Python code, whatever, uh, we call them tools, and you can equip the LLM with those tools. Okay, so we can say to the LLM, hey, you have this tool, let's say Google search or Twitter uh, tweet, and you can use it uh, to search online or to tweet on Twitter. So basically, agents is a, a lot of, prompt engineering and, uh, and some kind of uh, a code that was implemented uh, to enable the LLM to understand what it needs to do. For example, if I want to know the weather in Brazil right now, then I could ask the LLM, hey, what is the weather in Brazil right now? Now, the LLM won't know it. However, uh, it is very capable of uh, doing some uh, very cool reasoning. So if I'm going to ask it, hey, what is the weather in Brazil right now? How would you solve it or explain it to me step by step? Then you say, hey, okay, first I need to search online of uh, to, to what's the weather in Brazil. Then I want to extract uh, what is the weather of Brazil uh, in Celsius or Fahrenheit or whatever. So uh, the thing I'm, I'm describing right now, by the way, is from a uh, paper called Chain of Thoughts. Okay, so we basically, um, uh, basically uh, researchers saw that when you, in certain uh, tasks and certain questions, when you ask the LLM to describe how they think, then they come up with better answers and actually they have kind of a, a cool reasoning uh, engine. So basically you, you take this reasoning engine and let's say we have, um, we have now, I need to search online and then we can write codes uh, around everything to say, hey, first think about it step by step, okay? And then take the first task to search online and then we can write code that would, uh, that would know how to take uh, this line 
I would need to search online for what's the weather in Brazil and take this and actually do the searching with code. And then return the answer and continue. So this is very, very briefly, and we can go and talk about it very, very in depth, okay? But this is the very basics about agents. It's basically taking the LLM, okay? Using, taking the LLM, having a reasoning engine for that LLM and equipping it with tools to make actions. Okay, so so that it really boils down to, and again, it's uh, if if you're into coding and for from a software development perspective, it's actually not that hard. Okay, we it, it outputs very cool results, but the underlying truth is that it's nothing special here, and it's like it's it's you just, it's just a um an implementation of some creative thought of of humans of how to leverage it. Okay, so that, that's my take on it. Very interesting. Um, so this brings to mind because I, I think what happened with Twitter recently when the when the tool came out with GPT with the web browsing, I was able to go and search Twitter through the web browsing, uh, and then I believe what happened was Elon Musk said, "Oh, I know what's happening here. They're trying to ingest all of the data," and so I believe he actually like put the, the put a, a stop to it by changing the API functioning and saying, "Hey, now you guys got to go through the API in order to do this. You got to pay us to do it," um, and. So it brings to mind like a world right now, it's like reminds me of the internet in the beginning where the internet was this very, very open playing field where anybody could go do whatever they want. And then slowly by slowly, it started to turn into a sort of walled garden with Facebook and other types of things. Um, and so these agents, like, is there a lot of uh, ability for a lot of these centralized companies to essentially say, hey, no, you can't access that or you have, you have to pay to access that? Is that going to happen a lot, do you think? So we're seeing it right now. For example, right now, if you want to use Twitter API to scrape tweets, I mean, you want to do it uh, legitimately, okay? And in a legal way, you would need to use the Twitter API. And uh, if you want to use the Twitter API, I think you need to pay some money, okay? And depending on the API calls, it has its pricing on their own. Same thing as LinkedIn. If you want to scrape data from there, they also expose an API, but you have to pay for it. So I don't think that it's actually a bad thing. So because it's actually their companies, it's their data and they don't want it to be um, abused. Okay, so once you consume it through their API, then uh, they have control of how much can you can you digest and maybe a bit, and not about what to do with it, but if they see something suspicious, they can pull the plug and make it, you know, and they, they make their API unusable right now. So I do think, I mean, it, it's a very, they do it, uh, or it's, it's very important that they're doing it um, because, I mean, this thing you can obviously be exploited to do bad things, okay? Like to, I don't know, to, um, uh, like in, in political campaigns, uh, I mean, to try to influence what other people think. We also saw, saw all of this uh, a couple of years ago, I think, with a lot of... Uh, uh, people trying to influence other people, and yeah. So, um, did I cover the the question? Yes. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting. Um, so yeah, we have these APIs where we kind of like it, it's going to be a lot of walled gardens. It's reminded me of something called Urbit, which I've done a lot of episodes on. Have you heard of Urbit? 
no, actually, what is that? Urbit? Uh, no, yeah, no. U-R-B-I-T. Um, it's a, a new operating system like Linux uh, that is also a new internet, peer-to-peer -peer internet protocol where people basically own their own data and can port it wherever they want. And it's got a whole new functional programming language that's very uh, strange for people when they first see it. But after a while, apparently it solves a lot. Of, like engineers really love it because once they get through that uh, painful part of like um, screen up their head to understand what what this programming language is all about. It becomes really simple and easy, uh, and really easy to to kind of composability and such like that. So it's a new internet that's permissionless, um, and it's built off of a lot of the ideas of, of kind of crypto and stuff like that. And I I think that a world that's built on Urbit will be really interesting with AI. But uh, our the legacy internet once that's built on on AI. I think we're going to run into a lot of problems because um, I think a lot of these centralized servers or centralized companies will have a lot of incentive to do some crazy stuff, given how much data they have. Um, and, you know, and like part of that data is ours. Obviously, we've signed a, a deal to say that, you know, like when I joined Facebook, it's their data. But at the same time, it's like I'm putting a lot of that data out there. It's like that's, you know, Facebook wouldn't wouldn't have a business without without the data as well. And so Urbit kind of provides this sort of like a solution, a technological solution, a clean, a clean slate. Like they just threw away the whole operating system and threw it away all the old versions of the operating system and everything like that and started over again. Um, engineers usually love hearing about it. Do you, what do you, do you have any, I mean, you haven't heard of it before, but based on what I just said, what do you think about it? Um, I, to be honest, I don't know. I would need to check it. I use the operating system to run, you know, to maybe serve the internet, maybe code a little bit. So we'd need to see what it offers uh, for those use cases. Cool. So, uh, yeah, to be honest, I don't really mind about, like, my privacy and what I post. I mean, I think it's like, I mean, if I choose to post something uh, online, then I need to be accountable for it and to know that, hey, um, this is me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's go back to vector databases. Uh, uh, so it's a way of doing kind of similarity search within the LLM. Um, so we and we uh, a mutual acquaintance of ours, uh, Jeff Huber, is working on Chroma DB. Can you? Is that a vector database? Exactly. So yeah, yeah Chroma DB is a vector database. Um, yeah. So it's basically everything I talked about uh, in context learning then uh, it does that okay so it, you can put vectors in it you can search for them you can have also hybrid search to search for keywords and then filter them and then they take the similarity search so chromadb is also a very popular um, vector databases that uh, uh, people are using to build their generative ai applications and so what separates all these different vector databases? Because the one I had heard about was Pinecone. That was in the beginning. I had heard about Pinecone when AutoGPT was coming out. Like, what are all these databases basing their kind of unique selling proposition on? And like, how is it different from each one? Like, what are what are all the different options for these things? So to be honest, right now, the vector database is a very hard market because mm. there are a lot of new players. So let's, you can divide it. Uh, first of all, you have open source ones like uh, FICE, you have like, I think Chroma, ChromaDB is also a open source um, uh, where people can simply download it and, uh, and, and use it. And you have on the other side, managed databases. So to run a database locally on your computer, that's cool and, and, and that's fine. But when you write an application that is going to be serving millions of people, you need to handle scale. You need to handle availability. You need to handle durability and scalability. 
And uh, you can do it by yourself. Yeah, you can download the software, which is open source, and you can put it on servers, enhance the scaling and the operations. But uh, for a development perspective, it would be to invest a lot time and effort where you can use something which is called a managed service. So Pinecone, GCP matching engine, I think also ChromaDB, they have, um, they have a, uh, a managed version uh, of, a, of Chroma and the Weaviate is an example of a managed vector store. So basically all of those companies, they uh, written database, a uh, vector database, but they host it and they say, hey, you don't handle the scaling when you have millions of people and you don't need to to uh, worry about durability if uh, if you are being deployed in one region and there is a fire in the data center, we'll handle everything. You're going to get an SLA that this uh, server is going to be up for a uh, 99.999% of the time, for example, each one with uh, its own uh, terms. And uh, you simply use this database for that similarity search and to store your vectors and to do everything you want we will handle all the operations, all the scaling, okay? So in my opinion, uh, when I develop an application, I will definitely go for a managed vector store because I don't want to manage it by myself, okay? So it's like the trade-off is whether I want to pay money uh, for, to pay more money and to um, and all that responsibility of availability, durability, scalability being handled by the vector store provider, or I'm going to do it myself. So if I were doing it, I would need to rent servers, I would need to um, pooling and to uh, hire operation teams and to do a lot of stuff. So I think if you build an application, I would go with the managed vector stores. Yeah, it's really interesting because it goes back to the same question that Facebook faced a while ago, which was, uh, well, actually they didn't face it because they were the, they, they, before all the cloud servers, Facebook came out before all the cloud servers. So they had to build their own servers. But then they're spending a lot of money building their own servers, and then you know, Dropbox came came around, and Dropbox they went with the other way, which was to say, no, we don't want to build our own servers. We're going to just build it off of these cloud bases, basically, and give a software layer on top. And so everybody everybody who's starting these companies based on LLMs is going to have to think through this because now it's cheaper, but at some point it might actually be more expensive to hire someone else once you've got enough people to actually do this on your own. So like building out the the startup with the capability to do both might be an interesting. Uh, interesting idea, uh, but with startups, it's always crazy because the demands on what they do is so crazy to try to get from zero to one that it's it's very very difficult to do everything in order to, in a way that doesn't promote debt or doesn't avoid debt, but then uh, also very hard to actually then get to from zero to one if you're focused on things that don't really matter yet. So uh, it's very interesting. I want to go by back. By the way, startups. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, so go by for the it. way, startups uh, usually go. I mean, nowadays modern startups they almost all of the time starting the cloud. Because basically what the cloud offers them is that all that availability, durability, scalability, I was talking about all those elities, they, the cloud providers, they simply take it from those startups and say, hey, you guys focus on your idea, you write the code, we will hand it when it's going to scale to millions of people, okay? So so basically all these startups right now are, are I don't want to say all, but most of them are going to be um, digital, digital native and cloud native. Um, so cloud native. That's interesting. Um, we could, we could talk more about like Google cloud. Cause it, apparently you work there, you know, given the, given, given that, you know, this, this isn't a, a kind of, you're not speaking for them. 
Uh, but can can we go and talk more about like cloud, Google Cloud, and in, in relationship to um, kind of artificial intelligence? Um, yeah, we can dive in a bit about that. I can tell you, or I can talk about official things uh, from uh, official Google announcements and uh, like that. So sure. Um, so uh, um, my understanding is Google has something called TensorFlow, and Tensor tensors are these ways of like it's like a specific chip that is really good for machine learning applications. Um, and then they also have cloud support for it as well. Is that accurate? Um, so they have TensorFlow is a framework for uh, training models, uh, which is very popular. Um, uh, Google also have something which is called TPU, which is special hardware to run those, uh, uh, to, to, to run machine learning uh, dedicated code, for example, to train models. Okay, so this, uh, so this hardware is very, very efficient when uh, to perform those kinds of tasks. By the way, Tensor, I just looked it up uh, a couple of days ago. It actually means uh, a vector or a list of numbers. So we were talking earlier about numbers. So, yeah. So that's really interesting. Um, and so TPUs and stuff like that. Uh, so we got cloud. Let's go back to the long-term memory. Uh, and because you had mentioned before we started recording that a lot of these I, I had thought that vector databases were how long-term memory was being put into the into the into the LM, but you had said that no, they're actually just using normal databases. Uh, and I, I specifically, so, yeah, go for it. Yeah, so I just want to let me just say, um, refine like my answer. So you can also use the vector stores for long-term memory. So basically, you can put the vectors and you can attach like dates to them and stuff like that. But usually. Uh, from what I know, you also combine it with a relational database like Postgres, like uh, and to save the data as is, so you can have regular querying on it. Okay, so it it would be actually a mix of both of both of the regular relational databases that we're familiar right now, and with the vector databases. Uh, got so, it. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, so it's more complicated than a simple just yes or no answer that long term. Uh, but and so, kind of what are the what are the technical implications that we're going to face very soon about long-term memory? Like, will will do you think that LLMs will surpass human long-term memory uh, soon enough, or do you think like there are constraints within the first principles of of the engineering around this stuff where where it's actually going to be like really really difficult to give these these computers long-term memory? Like, what's the kind of like general vibe of of long-term memory and and LLMs? So. Long-term memory, um, it's basically saving all that data somewhere, okay? So you can save it in a database and theoretically you can save billions of rows that describe the data and that describe things, okay? And if you need more, you can scale it. Now in, in modern days with the cloud, we can easily scale databases and we can bring heavier machines with a larger storage and we can have um, as, as much memory as, as we want. So um, I don't know what, I, I, obviously it's not infinite because it all boils down to servers, but we can have a lot of memory and I don't think like there is a, a limit of uh, what the uh, LLM can, uh, uh, can remember. I mean, it's, it's the, the limit of how much data can you store in a, in a database. So there so, aren't, uh, yeah. there, there aren't like technical, so basically what you're saying, the problem isn't storage. The problem is actually these kind of the technical ways of actually uh, encapsulate capturing the memory basically is that capturing yeah. yeah yeah so basically i mean so 
when I talk about memory, I don't talk like about a human memory. Like I would remember this podcast of us uh, talking together, but the LLM memory is simply the prompt that the user gave the question and what the LLM answered. So this is when I talk about memory of LLMs. So if this is, this is just text and we can store it and we have endless of compute, not endless, but we have a lot of, a lot of storage and th there is really no limit. This is currently right now the memory. Maybe we can do some uh, smart and cool things like some projects are doing like adding importance and maybe tagging those memories. If it's good, it's bad. And it could be very, very creative to start taking uh, attributes of real memories that we have as humans and actually implementing them into uh, um, memories of LLMs. Okay, so. So uh, do you have any suggestions for either me or for people listening to this to go read read people who are, are tackling these problems of how to give it memory in, in a technical sense? Like, who are the people that I should be? So, yeah, go for it. Yeah, so. In, I talk. Let's say let's talk about the uh, generative AI application development, which uses also memory. Uh, I would uh, follow uh, Harrison Chase. So Harrison Chase is um, the co-founder and um, creator of the LangChain framework, uh, which is actually a course I have on Udemy, by the way. Um, and he is actually um, in this is LangChain is the most popular framework framework when you implement generative AI application. And everything I talked earlier about vector stores and memory and and, and documenting the, the prompts in context learning, it's all implemented in that. Now, basically, because this field is so new, okay, and really not a lot of people know what they're talking about, okay. But uh, uh, Harrison in LangChain, they actually take uh, the best. They, they actually create and sort of invent a lot of best practices when it comes to application, uh, generative AI application development. So I would really suggest uh, to follow him. Um, yeah, great. And I'll I'll put I'll put a link to both his Twitter. I'll find his Twitter, and then also I'll put a link to the your Udemy, Udemy class on Langchain. And let's go into Langchain. We got about uh, we got about five minutes left. What is the Langchain framework? And like I keep on hearing about it everywhere. Is it an open source way to program LLMs? Is that what it is? Can exactly. You exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's an open source software. It's a package where you can install and you can use as a developer. And it really makes your life as a developer when you want to uh, develop LLM applications. And like the entire thing I talked to you earlier about in-context learning, taking the prompt, turning into a vector, searching in the vector store, then augmenting the prompt, sending everything, all of this work, LangChain, you can do it with one line of code. It abstracts everything for it and says, hey, you want to do a conversation retrieval. That's what you want to do. So it's very, very popular. And to be honest, right now, the bar of uh, leveraging LA uh, LLMs and using LLMs uh, for developers that were not familiar with AI is uh, the gap, I mean, it has been bridged upon. Mm. So the barrier no longer exists. So I myself, up until a year ago, I had no idea on AI, but then LLMs came and also the frameworks like LangChain, you have also uh, Haystack, you have Llama Index, and basically the barrier, because this was a field that was reserved for data scientists and PhDs, uh -huh. and, and a lot of people uh, that have been studying it for a long, and, and the bar to get into this field was very, very high. Mm -hmm. But right now with LangChain and with uh, the progression of LLMs, it's super, super easy 
to get started and to build some very cool stuff I mean, mm. with it. That's very cool. I would love to kind of like figure out what all these open source developers is really interesting. And this might be a good time to ask this question about whether you think that uh, the kind of current state of LLM companies will have a business moat, or do you think open source is going to compete with them in a meaningful, meaningful way? And like how quickly it's going to happen. Do you think that they actually have business modes or how much do you believe that the open source side of this thing will rapidly evolve? Given what you just said is like it's within a couple of months, they now have this thing that has now essentially made it very easy for people like you and other people to build things off of. What's your take? So my take uh, is that uh, I think the leading companies will also, will always be in the leading uh, of technology and, with, and uh, be outputting and the state-of-the-art LLMs. However, uh, we might get into a point where these open source models are good enough, okay? So if it's good enough for me to, as a developer for most of my use case and it's free, uh, then why shouldn't I use it uh, instead of using uh, one of the big vendors? However, um, because they're open source models, so there is a lot of things about deploying those models. So I would need to deploy it myself and that would cost me money. So that's also a trade-off. Do I want to handle the deployment of this open source model? And because that maybe it would be also cheaper to use the state-of-the-art model that those big companies um, are offering. But I do see that um, I think like the gap uh, between the leading vendors of uh, LLMs and the open source ones is going to be narrowed, okay? At some point of time, there is always will be a gap and the folks will decide what's best for them. I mean, yeah. Uh, well, this has been extremely helpful. I now have a much better understanding of long-term memory of vector databases of uh, also of open source, which I've had a lot of questions about. Really appreciate you taking the time. How can people find out more about you and find out your about your Udemy course? So yeah, you can uh, look me up on Twitter. So uh, my Twitter handle is EdenMarco177. And uh, yeah, if you want uh, to look me at uh, on Udemy, you can simply go to Udemy, write LangChain, and you'll find my course there. It's ranked number one. I have around the 700 reviews, thousands of students already. So um, you'll see my picture. <laughs> That's very cool. I really appreciate you taking time. Sure. Thank you. So it was great talking to you, Stuart. And what else? Thanks for the time and thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.